This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Yeah, good to see you guys. I missed you big time. If you need a Bible, could you just put your hand in the air and wave it like you just don't care? Yeah. Um, there's some guys back there. If you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you, and we would love for you to take that home, mark it up, and uh, study it, and uh, we would love for you to, if you do have one and you just need one for today, then uh, raise your hand and we'll get that in your hand. You can leave that on your seat. I, I will say this, I missed everybody big time. Um, I love going on vacation. I love being with my family. We look forward to this, uh, this time every year to just uh, kind of check out for a while and uh, be with each other. Um, it's great to see my kids grow up. I don't want to miss a second of that. And just to see them enjoy time together with the family is so important. So thank you to all of you who made that possible for us. I will say this, though, man, just being gone makes me miss you guys a lot more. So this is just time coming back with you is, um, is really, really uh, special because I really consider this home. My family is here. You guys are my family, and I'm thankful for that. I, I want to do something, though. There's no way we could do that without all those who filled in and covered for us. And so if you could give a hand to all the elders and leaders and servants that did a great job. Man, I heard that those who preached did incredible. And just to kind of sum up what we went through th- for the last five weeks, I'll tell you, we purposely did this series called Tapestry. Uh, and it was it was my... Uh, it was my idea with a group of guys that we have been praying praying and, and just seeking God on this. And I, I know that this series was uncomfortable. If you felt uncomfortable in this series, then you, you actually f- uh, received what we've been praying for you, um, that you would be uncomfortable and that you would uh, move into that discomfort and not just sit in a comfort zone, but that God would move us out of that. If we felt uncomfortable, that was the spirit of God moving us into uh, recognizing the differences that we have with one another and causing us to sit at the same table, to look into one another's faces and to be able to enjoy what God has created us to be at the same time submitting that to one another, that this would be a church that would be united around Christ and not around uh, external things, but that we would be united around. I love looking in this room and seeing all the different kinds of people I have the best seat in the house. I love to see your faces and what God's doing in this church is exciting to me. If you could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to continue in our series that we took a break from for about 11 weeks now. Um, And and just so you can kind of see where I have to go this morning, um, because we have taken a break from Romans, a two-year series, but we took a break from Romans 11 weeks ago, And then we're going to pick it up from here and we're going to go to the end of the year and finish this series this year. Um, If you just think with me, 11 weeks ago, we were not the same church we are now. (laughs) A lot has happened in 11 weeks. A lot has happened in 11 weeks. Uh, We've moved over here into this new place. We've seen uh, incredible growth and a lot of excitement as people have come together. We have... Uh, walked through uh, major, major transitions. I mean, life-altering transitions. And so 
to pick up in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For many of you, you're coming in for the first time to Romans at Romans chapter 10. We've been going at this for a, a year and a half now, and you're coming in at Romans chapter 10. So I feel the weight of kind of backing up and just sprinting at Romans chapter 10 as fast as we can and taking kind of an overview of all that we've gone through. And I'm going to try to put stuff on the screen and I'm just going to run through the things that we've learned through Romans chapter 10 and try to catch up to Romans chapter 10 so that while, when, when, I, when I land there in about 20 minutes in Romans chapter 10 verse 5, we'll have some footing for why we are are here. So Romans chapter 10, is, Romans is written by Paul, and in chapter 1, he sets the foundation of this. Something very interesting. When Paul introduces himself, he doesn't say, hi, my name's Paul. I like taking walks on the beach, and, you know, I got this color hair and this color eyes. I, this is who I am. No, he introduces himself by introducing who Jesus is. He introduces the gospel to introduce himself to show that he finds his identity in Christ. In the work of the gospel. So he introduces himself through the gospel. And then he shares a deep affection that he has for Rome. For the people in Rome that he's never met before. And he has a deep affection for them. Showing them that not only does he find his identity in the gospel. But he builds his relationships on the foundation of the gospel. That both who he is and who his people are. Are founded on the gospel. And then we hit the 116, Romans 116. If y'all are a part of the 116 or have the tattoos or if you have no clue what I'm talking about, this is all good. The 116, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. This is this great declaration that, that Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Off of this foundation, he launches into the confrontation of sin. I think that we can only launch into the confrontation of sin when we have a deep conviction that the gospel is more powerful than sin. And so he goes into confronting rebellious sin for about, uh, about a chapter or, or a half of a chapter. Rebellious sin, speaking of all the kinds of things you would think of when you think of sin. And he confronts those things, showing that we all worship, uh, we all worship these faults, God, that we've, uh, we've been turned over to our own flesh and, and that we've been separated from God. He shows us all these things and what we've done to rebellion. But then he spends two chapters, chapter 2, chapter 3, he spends two chapters confronting self-righteous sin, religious sin. He confronts the, the church's sin, if you will, Israel's sin. Self-righteousness, this idea that because we are who we are, we are, more, we are better than others. We have this elevated position because we've lived up to certain laws or we've worked our way to a better position in God. And so he confronts self-righteousness. And what he's trying to do is show us as he confronts sin that it doesn't matter if, you, if you've never done anything wrong and never hung out with people who do. You didn't smoke, you didn't cuss, you didn't hang out with people who did, or you smoked, cussed. And all you hung out with was people who did. It doesn't matter what background or kind of goodness. Maybe you're moral. You never did anything wrong. You got all straight A's or whatever. Whatever your list is. Or maybe you just flunked out of everything. Those kinds of things don't earn you a certain position with God. He's leveling the playing field showing us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he levels the playing field in chapter 2 and 3. And then on that level playing field he declares 
what Jesus has done, that the gospel work of Jesus has accomplished it by his grace, that he has made us right, that he has purchased us, that his work on the cross is our great and glorious work that we could never accomplish for ourselves. There's this new day. And then he shows us that the only way we can receive this is by faith. This word faith is trusting in God. The only way we can receive this. And because of the work of Christ and because all of sin and because what Jesus has done and because that this entrance into that is by believing and trusting in God, what do we get in salvation? Chapter 5 and 6 shows us we get union with Christ. Many of us think, oh man, what do I get? If I get Jesus, I get healing or I get prosperity. I get all these kinds of things and we're trying to use Jesus to get something else. But what the what, what scripture shows us is what we get in salvation is we get, we were separated, we were rebellious, we turned our back on God. What we get in salvation is we get Jesus. We get to be united with him and if you don't get excited about that, then you're getting excited about the wrong things. What you get is God. You were separated from him. You were aliens of him. You were enemies of him. And what Jesus did has brought you back into union with God. And not only brought you back into union with him, he gives us new life. Because he knows we don't need a second chance. You need a new life. So what does he do? He unzips us by his spirit. He blows into us his spirit. He gives us this new life. And he lives through us and in us. And we hit chapter 8, and in chapter 8, we just soar. We start soaring in the promises of God. I mean, if you hit a chapter 8, you start to, to realize that when we see our sin and we see the work of Christ and we receive that by faith and we get this union with Christ, out of this great declaration comes, verse 1 says, there's no condemnation. Verse 11 says, we get this, the Spirit will give us life. Verse 16 says, the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Verse 18 shows us the glory to be revealed is better than the suffering of the present time. Verse 28 says, all things work together for good for those who love Him and called according to His purpose. Verse 30 says, He's predestined us, He's called us, He's justified us, and He's glorified us and verse 31 says if God is for us who can be against us verse 32 shows us that he did not spare his son and if he didn't spare his son what great thing is he going to withhold from us verse 33 says who shall separate us from the love of God and the answer to that is nothing shall separate us from the love of God verse 37 shows us that we are more than conquerors for those who are in Christ Jesus I tell you Romans 8 is flying is soaring is this great declaration of who we when we know who we are in Christ when we know what Christ has done there is this unshakable unwavering assurance that we are his then verse 9, then chapter 9. And in chapter 9, it kind of goes, Argh! and people get stuck on chapter 9. And, and after chapter 9, I can see why we took a 10 or 11 week break just to kind of take a whoo, you know. Chapter 9 is the source of many debates. Um, even this week, while I was on vacation, I got an email from pastor who wanted to debate me on 
chapter 9. Uh, he doesn't want to mess with this. Uh, calling you out. You know who you are. No. There's, there's, there's something about chapter 9 that is the source of much contention. Um, but when you get to chapter 9, there, there has to be an understanding of what God is doing. Because if he just went through all of chapter 8, you have to believe 9, 10, and 11 fit. If you believe in the harmony of Scripture, you have to believe all of this is God's authoritative inspiration that he is showing us something. And chapter 9, 10, and 11, uh, many people pull out of Romans and like 8 to 12, you know, skip there. But we're going about to go through 10 and 11. And, and I want us to see the harmony of this because there's something extremely important to this. That, that if, if, if chapters 1 through 8 are true, then why does he start to address Israel in chapter 9, 10, and 11? And here's, here's the reason why. Uh, God, the God of Israel, has just embraced the world. He sent his son to establish a new covenant, and he's set in motion a global mission to rescue all sinners. His promise of glorious consummation that the entire universe is is going to be restored to God. And all of these promises are totally dependent on the faithfulness of God. So picture this, if you will. Because of this declaration of this glorious gospel that we're like, woo, chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter, yes. And because of that, Gentiles are streaming into the kingdom. And now God's covenant people are lost. And people are wondering and rejecting, and so they're asking this question, what good is a covenant anyways? If God's just going to change the covenant, what good's the covenant? Because if he would change it on Israel, wouldn't he change it on you? So what Paul is dealing with in chapter 9, 10, and 11 is the fact, is the covenant changed? Or is Paul, or, or, or is God faithful to his promise? Has he failed his promise? And the answer, if we can see it, and why it's important for us to see it in chapter 9, although it's offensive language, it's important for us to see, no, he has not failed his covenant. And what he does in chapter 9 is show us that there is a difference between how they saw Israel and how God sees Israel. See, they saw Israel as an ethnic people. God sees Israel as a spiritual people. And so they thought all ethnic people that called themselves Israel were Israel, were, were God's people. And what he shows in chapter 9 is there's, there's an ethnic Israel and then there's a true Israel. And ethnic Israel pursued righteousness the wrong way, but true Israel found their righteousness, if you look at chapter 10, verse 4, in Christ. For Christ was the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what they, what they saw was that the fulfillment of all promises ended in Christ, and the righteousness came from Christ. That was true Israel. So what does this mean for me, because once we start talking about Israel, a lot of us start checking out. 
And here's the reason why. Because we love to individualize scripture. I mean, the, the reality is we look at it and unless we see a connection to me, I don't want nothing to do with it. Unless, unless this does something for me, I don't want anything to do with it. And I, I'm troubled by that in, in many ways because we do have a hard time connecting with situations around the world. We could hear about deaths and, and famine and, and all these kinds of things around the world and then go back to sipping our wine and not care at all. Why? Because unless we're personally connected to something, we feel no need to understand. Now, here's, here's the important thing about this. I think there is personal connection, but I, I, I think there's, there's a, a, a great connection for Israel, but there's a personal connection for us. And I want you to look at a quote from, from John Piper. I'm going to read it and then make a few comments, and then we'll, we'll land on chapter 5, but I need you to, to stay with me. Here's, here's what you need to hear. Israel is the historical theater where the drama of every human soul is played out for all to see. What goes on inside you spiritually and every other person has gone on in Israel historically and the story is told so that we can see ourselves and see the world understands. Here's what you have to understand about, about Israel. Is as you look back in the story of God and you see that place where God's chosen people, you, you could get there. And, and I don't know if you're like me, you start reading these stories of things where God just delivers them and then they go out and start doubting and they, they do this and you're just going, man, these people are crazy. Man, they're so stupid. How could they just forget? And then you don't even have to meditate that long before you go, that's me. You don't even have to think that deeply. And you, you can find yourself not even getting that angry because you realize quickly that's you. And so what we need to see throughout Romans is Paul is laying this case. You see in Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 15, that every heart has a form of God's law written on it. See, we see that in Romans 2.15. The Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. So what we see is that a form of God's law is written on our hearts. Even though Israel was on the stage of the theater and we got to see their visible law, there's an invisible law that's written on our hearts. And although we know their moral law and their visible law, there is a law that is written on our hearts. Even if you don't adhere to their law, you have set for yourself a law by which you know if you're a good person. I rarely find somebody who doesn't think they're a good person. Why? Because they've set for themselves a law, a standard by which if they live up to that, they determine whether or not they live up to that standard or not. But here's the interesting thing. Not only do we all have our own law, number two, we all fail to keep the law that we have. Paul says in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What he shows us in this is no matter what law we have, we all fail to keep it. 
Isn't that the interesting thing? You set a law for yourself, and then you break your own law. That's crazy. It's crazy. I've done it so many times. This time, I'm going to buckle down, I'm going to try harder, and I'm going I'm to really reach my goals. And then I don't. And then I swear next time, I will do it. I'm going to try harder. We continue to extend ourselves grace after grace when we don't reach our own laws. We all have sinned. What we see in this is that Israel's sin was clear. Why? Because it was on the stage of the drama. It was, it was on the stage of all history. And we look back at their sin and they are on the, they're just up on the screen. Everybody can see it. But ours is invisible. Ours is in our heart. Our rejection of God's law may not be written in all history, but you know it's there. Number three is, all of us know that we fail to live up to God's law. So our conscience condemns us. We know, every one of us know in this room that we're deserving to be judged. We see Israel being judged. And we know they deserved it. Why? Because we see it written in history. They deserved everything they got. We don't have to think long before we realize we're deserving of judgment. And number four is this. After you see that there is a law, a law that none of us could live up to, that all of us have sinned, we're all deserving judgment, number four is this. The guilt, of rem the remedy for Israel's guilt and condemnation is relevant for us. You see, all of history, from Genesis chapter 3 when we see the first sin and where we see God's first promise of the gospel and we see this unfolding of all of history, all the prophets, all the stories, everything were pointing to this future righteousness where this Savior would come and this Savior would pay their price and this Savior would redeem them. All of it was pointing towards Christ, this Hope in Christ was their only hope for that guilt and condemnation and that restoration to happen between them and God. And the remedy for Israel is the remedy for you, my friends. That Christ is the only hope for our salvation. Not the law. Not our self-righteousness, but Christ. We see that in verse 4. Now, what I would like for us to do on that footing, stand together, and we're going to read Romans chapter 10, verse 5 through 13. We're going to make a few points, then we're going to respond. And here's, here's why we need to respond, because God makes a clear call through His Word. That call is clear, that call is a, a line in the sand, if you will, and that call demands a response. This scripture demands a response, whether it is rejection or acceptance. The reason why we stand when we read God's Word is because I, I want you to delineate from my blabbing and understand that what we're reading is different than just me talking. This is God's Word. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person 
who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteous, based on faith, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are there. I pray, Lord, by your spirit that each person in this room would hear a clear call of the gospel and that your spirit would move on their hearts, open their ears so they can hear. Help them to have the faith to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the ushers grabbed me a towel because I'm about to preach up in this place. A big one where I could just wipe it all off. Romans chapter 10 verse 5 now begins to make real sense when you understand what Paul is confronting here. Here's what he is confronting, that you have misunderstood the law, that Israel misunderstood the law and Moses writes in Deuteronomy, which he's going to refer to in these first three verses. He refers to this righteousness that comes from the law, and this righteousness that he refers to is this: there must be perfect obedience, and there must be perfect trust and faith. Now, whenever I use that term, perfect obedience and perfect trust and faith. All of you, because you understand the gospel and because you have this conscious, no, I didn't do that. I didn't have perfect obedience and I didn't have perfect trust and faith. Well, what he's showing in verse 4 is there is one, there's one in all of history who who has had perfect faith and perfect obedience and that is Jesus. And so what he says is, well, What's that word then? Is that word that we will ascend? If you get this idea, we cannot say, here's what I'll do. I will work my way into heaven. That's what the law does. It tries to get you to believe that you can do enough and work your way into heaven. But what he's saying is when you do that, what you're doing is causing Christ to descend. When, you're, when you do that, you're, you're diminishing the work of Christ. Why? Because if you think you can ascend into heaven, here's, here's the answer to that. Only Jesus did that. Then he's saying, well, I can descend. What does that mean? Well, that's the idea that what I'll do is pay the penalty for my own sin. I will die the death that needs to be died. I will pay the penalty that needs to be paid. But what he's saying is only Jesus could do that. If it is true 
what Paul is saying, that the law was meant to show us this. That we couldn't live up to that perfect righteousness and what we really needed was one who could. Who could ascend and descend. The one who could fulfill the law perfectly. And what he shows us is that the righteous, there's a righteousness of faith. We see that in verse 8. And verse 8 is really connected to verse 4 because what we can start to focus on if we're not careful is the word faith. Remember, faith is passive and Christ is the object of faith. Faith is only as strong as that which it is rooted in. So you can't just go, well, I got such great faith. It's not about faith. It's about what is your faith in. So it's rooted and into a righteousness that comes from Christ. And what does that say? What is That righteousness of faith come from, it comes from this idea. Not from I will ascend, I will work my way, or I will descend and I will pay. It comes from this. Jesus came near. Jesus did the work in my heart. Jesus put his word in my mouth. His spirit lives within me. Just saying this excites the soul of the believer. Why? Because they've given up on trying to ascend and they've given up of trying to descend and they found great comfort in the fact that Jesus has come near. Jesus has done the work in my heart and Jesus has put His Spirit in me and His Word in my mouth. That righteousness, yeah. Jesus is connected to that. What do we have faith in? We have faith in Christ. And then verse 9 and 10 come. And this is, if you've probably heard this, because if you've heard of the Romans road, you know how much these verses play into this. But I think we want to see the heart of the gospel when we see verse 9 and 10. The heart of the gospel is faith and trust. This word I'm going to use is the simplicity of of the gospel, and the reason why I want to use this word simplicity of the gospel is not because I want you to think of simplicity as, as easy and childish, because sometimes we think simple as easy or childish. But when I went to uh, San Francisco and I saw Redemption in San Francisco and I was able to fellowship with my brothers and sisters there and, and I walked into the room and the design was there and Jack DeBarlow who helped us with our architecture and all our design, he helped them over there. I walked in and I said, man, this is so simple and clean and beautiful. When I say the word simple, this is what I want us to think of. I want us to think of uh, uncluttered and beautiful. Why? Because there's a simplicity in the two things that he's calling us into in this text. If we're talking about what salvation is, it's not a, the law can't give it to us. It's these words. It's faith and trust. And here's how we do it. Through confession and belief. And what do we believe in? One, Jesus is Lord. You want to know what that means? Since Genesis chapter 3, we have rebelled against the king of the world. We have fought to overthrow the creator of all the universe, God himself who created all things. We have said, no, I want to be king. And we have, instead of wanting to be under his rule and reign, we have fought to be our own kings. So quiet in here now. And we place, instead of placing ourselves under his rule and reign, 
and confessing him as Lord of our lives, we declare that we are our own Lord and our own master. But here is what is extremely important, my friends. When you are confessing that he is Lord, what you are doing is declaring your allegiance to this. I don't want to be the old, my Lord any longer. I don't want to run my own life. I surrender my all to him. I lay myself down. What? We see who Jesus is. We see that he's a better king. We see that he's the creator of all the world and has all power and is in control of all things. And we reject being the Lord of our own lives. That's why it's so important for us to understand what salvation is. It's not just about us benefiting by going, what do I get out of the deal? What you get out of the deal is no longer do you get to be king. You get to admit you're a terrible king. And you need a gracious and loving and perfect king. And that is Jesus. And what we do is surrender to his rule and reign. And the second thing we do is this. We believe that God has been raised from the dead. I love this because when we talk about God raising from the dead, what he's showing us is contrasting it against the law. The law says you need to earn, you need to earn, you need to earn. What this shows us is the work is done. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He paid the price for your sin. But what does his resurrection show? His resurrection shows this. The check has cleared. And it shows us the price is fully paid. No longer do you have to try to pay back the debt that you could never pay back. And, and the picture here is like a man who keeps going to work to pay bills that have already been paid. The mortgage is paid. All the bills are paid. And the man just keeps going, I got to put in overtime, baby. I got to get out there and pay those bills. I got to get out there and do my thing. And the, and the wife just keeps going, baby, stay home. The bills are paid. No, 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 no. I got to get out there. I don't think the bills are paid. I got to work harder. I got to do more. I got I to gotta get out there. I got to pay those bills. Just, baby, stay home. The bills are paid. Two things happen in salvation. There's a confession, allegiance. You are the Lord of my life. I reject my lordship. I surrender to yours. Second is this. Your work was enough. Your grace is enough. The price is paid. And then what we see in verse 11 through 13 is that the target of the gospel takes place. He references Joel in 11 through 13 on the day of the Lord where all nations will come before God. Here's what he's showing us. That God has not forsaken his promise. That all the goal of the prophets, all the goal of Israel, all the goal of spiritual Israel, that God was pronouncing the coming of Christ and that all the law would rest upon Christ and that they would find shalom and peace and rest in this Messiah and that we Jews, Greeks, Gentiles will come before the throne of God. The whole target, the whole aim of the gospel was always that all would come before the throne of God. The whole Bible was going there from the very beginning. He did not forsake his covenant. What do we see 
in this. As the band comes, I want these last things to be up on the screen because here's where we drill into your heart. Here's where we begin to dive into your spirit. And my prayer is this, that you hear this and you realize this call demands a response. Rejection or acceptance. There is a strong gospel call, and that is this. One, is Jesus the Lord of all in your life? Have you confessed complete allegiance and loyalty to him? Is he, is he the fulfillment of all things in your life? Is he the king? Remember, this is not a call for perfect obedience to the law. This is a call for surrender to Christ who perfectly obeyed the law. Have you confessed Jesus as Lord of your life? Confession means allegiance or loyalty. Have you complete loyalty and allegiance to Christ? The other thing is this. Do you believe? Believe in your heart that Jesus' work is enough? Or are you still trying to pay back with pennies the enormous debt that has already been paid? And this call also calls us to make a public confession. A public confession is one of powerful allegiance and loyalty to God. And it promises this, that everyone, you see this in verse 13, everyone who is connected to him will not be put to shame. We know we all deserve judgment, but when we stand before God on judgment day, our only hope, our only hope, my friends, is this has to be true. If it's not, we're all damned. If this is not true, that Jesus' perfect life Death, burial, and resurrection is enough for me. I have no hope. If this is not true, none of us have hope. And because of this perfect love, grace, and because of His movement of His Spirit on my heart, because His revelation of this in me, I want nothing less than Him to be the Lord of my life, and to surrender all I have to Him, and to rest in the finished work. What do I do? Every day, I repent. Repent of me wanting to be the own, my own king. And I believe. I believe in the work of Jesus once again. It's ongoing, but today, this is a call for us in this room. In the first service, five people stood and confessed to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. Today, we're asking for that same thing. That I believe in this room, there are some of us in here who are having our eyes opened by the Spirit. God is showing us, as He shows us in verse 9, that He shows mercy on who He wants to. And right now, He's showing mercy on some of you. 
He's opening your eyes, my friends. He's tugging at your heart. He's pulling you towards Him. He's making Himself clear. And what you're realizing right this moment is that you're a horrible king. And you're tired of running your own life. And what you need is someone who would love you more than your rebellion and sin and pay the price for you. And you hear this glorious gospel proclamation and something clicks and today you're saying, I want that. Don't try to earn it. Don't make some profession that you'll try harder. You'll, Pastor, I'll pick myself up this time. I'm going to try harder. Watch this week. I'm going to have a really good week. No, 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 no. Reject your self-righteousness. And there's going to be some brothers and sisters over in this corner over here who would love to pray with you, confess with you that Jesus is the Lord of your life and that you have accepted His work of salvation for you. And while that's happening, some of you go, well, I don't want to do it publicly. Listen to me on this. There's something that the Bible shows us throughout all... That public confession is needed. But as you walk up to this place and you're admitting you need a Savior, someone's standing with you and you're declaring that, we rejoice. Then at that same time, Anthony's going to come and lead all of us in a time of communion where we need to, while they're praying, let the Spirit work on our hearts. But let me pray. And if you want prayer, if you want to make that declaration and you want to confess Him as Lord and Savior of your life, then, then we want to meet you over here. God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that I can just sense that you are moving by your Spirit on the hearts of your people. You are showing mercy. You're showing yourself. You're showing in clarity what has been so confusing for so long. Right now, there's some who are sitting in this room, and it's just becoming 3D. It used to just be on a page, but now it's popping off the page, and they're seeing that Jesus is their only hope, and I pray today that they would publicly come and stand with these brothers and sisters and put their faith and trust and confess that you are the Lord of their life. Let this be the day.